A very warm hello and welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us, drawing from activist archives through to voices of resistance today. To kick off the show, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from Stolen Lands. That's the Stolen Lands of the Wurundjeri people in the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. My name is Phil Evans, and I'm joining you today for the fifth installation of our retrospective series looking back at the history of Friends of the Earth in so-called Australia. We're paying tribute to the incredible stories that have happened over the years, and today we'll be looking under the cover at the intricacies between campaign strategy, campaign tactics, and specifically to shine a light on how and when direct action has found a place in our campaigns. This year at Friends of the Earth, we're celebrating 45 years of resistance. That's 45 years we've been mobilising communities, resisting the oppressive forces from patriarchy to nuclear radioactive racism, and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. I'll be taking you through the politics of the time, so over our 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, what we did and why it's still important. Lately, we've seen people around Australia and indeed the world taking direct action to raise the alarm over the impending climate crisis. Over the past 45 years, these tactics have been employed in different times by people supporting Friends of the Earth's campaigns. I hope you can stick around and join me for the next hour of radio as we'll be chatting to Mara Bonacci, a long-term anti-nuclear campaigner, and also Dr. Meriden Redenbach, who is a stalwart from the now-defunct Quit Coal era of Friends of the Earth, and we'll be talking about their campaigns, how they've been part of it, and the variety of tactics that have been employed to achieve campaign goals over time. But before we begin all that, let's unpack a few terms. What is direct action? What is civil disobedience? What is a tactic? And what strategy? So direct action can be defined as many things. But in a nutshell, it is a use of strikes, boycotts, public protests and other interventions, as opposed to negotiations or voting, in order to achieve a goal or objective. It's about taking power, speaking truth to power, and not handing that to a middle person. Martin Luther King said, Actions are things done to convince others to work with you in resolving injustices. Direct action imposes a creative tension into the conflict. Direct action is most effective when it illustrates the injustice it seeks to correct. I also like North American activist Joshua Russell Kahn's take. He says... Direct action means that we take collective action to change our circumstances without handing our power to a middle person. Often direct action is practiced by people who have few resources seeking to liberate themselves from an injustice. We do direct action for many different reasons, and I like this take from Ruckus. You can check out their work at ruckus.org. One reason is for announcement or alarm, and that's to shine a light on a hidden or more likely covered up danger that must not be kept secret. Another reason to do direct action, reinforcement. So the issue remains murky to the public. You take action to clearly define the evil or injustice and the party's responsible. It might be for punctuation, to sustain interest in a campaign or as a reminder that the problem has not gone away. It can be used to escalate, to raise the stakes in an ongoing struggle. If a group of activists who have not previously used direct action turn to it, this sends a clear message that the situation has become critical and direct action is one of the last remaining avenues of protest. It can also be used to boost morale in a group. Sometimes when a group has suffered a setback or morale is low, a group is, might be tired from a long struggle. Actions can serve to raise the spirits and renew the struggle. 
To many, civil disobedience is about deliberate and intentional violation of the law, motivated by a sense of morality and for the betterment of the community. But even this is too broad a stroke. The term actually originates from a paper published in 1849 by Henry David Thoreau, who wrote, If the injustice is part of the necessary friction of the machine of government, let it go, let it go. Perchance it will wear smooth. Certainly the machine will wear out. If the injustice has a spring or a pulley or a rope or a crank exclusively for itself, then perhaps you may consider whether the remedy will not be worse than the evil. But if it is of such a nature that it requires you to be an agent of injustice to another, then I say, break the law. Let your life be counter-friction to stop the machine. What I have to do is to see, at any rate, that I do not lend myself to the wrong which I condemn. Confused? Well, don't worry, lots of people are. Maybe a key distinction is direct action is often legal and doesn't always involve breaking the law. Whereas if you are breaking a law on purpose and with intention, then you might be doing civil disobedience. Whew. So before we start digging into detail with our guest, I just want to talk about tactics and strategy. So imagine you were setting off on a journey to visit Grandma. You might say your goal, here your final destination, is to get to Grandma's house. But how will you get there? Here you need to develop a strategy. So you might look at maps on your phone to determine a route. This forms the basis of your strategy to reach your goal, that is, to get to Grandma's house. To implement your strategy, you're going to need tactics or things to do to move you along your strategy. Here you might decide to walk to the bus stop, catch the 201 bus to Whoville, and then walk again the rest of the way. You've decided three tactics to get to your goal or to progress your strategy. One, walking to the bus stop. Two, catching the 201 bus. And three, walking the rest of the way. So to reach your goal, getting to Grandma's house, you developed a map, how to get there, your strategy, and deployed three tactics to get there. Walking, catching the bus, then walking again. Okay, okay, okay. Enough with the theory lesson. Let's get down to business. We're just going to quickly go and listen to some community service announcements, and then we'll be back. You're on 3CR, I'm Phil Evans, and this is Acting Up. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. The Voice of West Papua now has a one-hour show. We have moved from Monday 6.30 to Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. Yes, more news and music from West Papua. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. 
You're listening to Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. This is Phil, and I've got Dr. Meryn Redenbach on the phone to chat with us about her time in the Quit Coal Collective and what strategies and tactics were being used at the time. Hi, Meryn. How's it going? Hi, Phil. Everything's great. Oh, fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. So for listeners out there in radio and podcast land, can you give us a bit of an idea of how you came to be involved with Friends of the Earth? So actually my involvement didn't start with the Quick Coal Collective. I was first involved with Friends of the Earth way back in 1998 when I was a student at the University of Melbourne. And at that time, the Jabaluka, anti-Jabaluka mine movement was taking place. So I was very much peripherally involved in the fringes, but um, some friends of mine did a bike ride from Melbourne up to Jabaluka, which was called the Cycle Against the Nuclear Cycle. And one of the kind of places that we'd sometimes meet and that we were linked with was Friends of the Earth, even though it was a kind of independent collective. It was, um, yeah, we certainly had support through Friends of the Earth at that time too. I had no idea your involvement went back that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Friends of the Earth was definitely a hub in the anti-Jabaluka mine movement. Um, and so I think many activists at the time came and went through Friends of the Earth. If we can move forward a little bit in time, um, I wondered particularly about your time with Quit Coal. It was a pretty dynamic and amazing collective in its day. It certainly um, was a part of my coming to be part of the Friends of the Earth family, I suppose. I remember my first meeting with the Quit Coal Collective. I think it was still called the Stop HRL Collective then. And I walked in, there were five very intelligent people sitting around planning um, all these amazing actions and ideas. How did you first get involved with um, anti-coal or climate justice action? Like a lot of people, it started with an awakening that I had really not realised how significant the threat of climate change was and hadn't hadn't realised that it wasn't being dealt with, which I'm sure is a shock that, that many people who've come to climate activism have, have come across, certainly those who entered climate activism in their adult years. But um, for me, it was started in the cliched way with watching the Al Gore film, An Inconvenient mm. Truth, in, I think, 2007, and then trying to work out how to get involved as a volunteer, really, in climate action. I Initially, I actually looked around when I was looking to get involved. It was some of the big groups that you have know, well-known names in conservation and thought I could perhaps get involved that way, but I found it really hard to find a pathway in, and it was really through hearing about the grassroots climate justice movement through the local climate action group mm. and then the climate action gatherings. I think there was a, a, a camp that I missed it in um, Newcastle in 2008, um, but then subsequent actions from that that I really learned how um, volunteers and grassroots members of the community could get involved in climate action. From there, I joined with a group of others who were led out of Friends of the Earth or were organised with the support, I guess, of Friends of the Earth to start the campaign to switch off Hazelwood Power Station. That was 2009, from memory, and there was a fantastic coal campaigner, Louise Morris, who was based at Friends of the Earth. And at that time, yeah, a collective started that really looked at doing a peaceful walk-on to Hazelwood Power Station to indicate that the power station had lost its community licence to pollute. And um, we spent about six months with a collective 
organising that initial peaceful protest at Hazelwood Power Station. And that was a really incredibly powerful day, I think, for the Victorian climate justice and, and um, anti-fossil fuel movement, where we had, I think at that time, what, what seemed like a huge number of people, a couple of hundred people at Hazelwood Power Station, and from memory, around 30 to 35 people who were arrested for peacefully going onto the grounds of ha- Hazelwood Power Station to deliver um, actions of the removal of the community licence to police. I rem- I, so, I'd actually forgotten about that. I can't believe it. Um, that was one of the first um, actions that I um, took in Victoria <laughs> after moving over in um, 2005. And I, um, rem- yeah, well, yeah, I think the whole action was you know, absolutely amazing. We had some really experienced activists, um, Louise Morris, in one of the Guns 20 in Tasmania and um, also Damien Lawson who'd been involved in environmental activism for a long time and they were they were just really supportive around a core of people who were, some of whom were new to action and some other really great contributors and people from Socialist Alliance were involved and mm. um, other socialist groups who, who really shared some knowledge and experience as well. But there were the majority, I'd say, of that collective were people who had uh, really not been involved in um, peaceful direct action before. And so it was an absolutely amazing learning experience. And from that core, we had we had a, a group of arrestees from that group mm. and they went on to continue meeting and eventually kind of transformed into the, the campaign against the HRL power station that was proposed in the Latrobe Valley. Um, and ultimately from, from that, the Stop HL group collective evolved into quick call so yeah it was really it was a really um amazing journey and having those experienced activists to help and mentor and support and um be incredibly patient with the newcomers to the collective i think was or, or to the process was, was yeah absolutely critical and friends of the earth played a huge role in that i remember the um really uh, strong push for people to uh join affinity groups um, or small groups who um, autonomously could do their own action or bring their own um, element to that protest. Um, in particular, my favourite um, of the day, and I still I can see the image in my head when I think about it, was the Ministry of Silly Walks. Um, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, they, were, they were great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think... I- from memory, dressed up in suits and um, and uh, yeah, doing some uh, very silly walks around the place. So it really brought some humour and lightness um, to the action. And yeah, there were quite a few groups like that that had just really had these creative approaches. Mm, for sure. I um, remember the next year, I think it was in 2010, there was another uh, mass community protest at the site at Hazelwood um, the following year. And I remember being so inspired by what I'd seen um, in the 2009 action that I actually joined the Indie Media team to help them um, push out the messages from the actual protest site. So it was very inspiring and very important for me. <laughs> oh, it was great to hear. Um, I do remember some of the coverage of that second action, and in particular, for a while, there was a Wikipedia page, maybe there still is, that um, declared that it had the largest man-made solar thermal power station <laughs> ever constructed. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that was pretty impressive. It was um, a very, um, <laughs> very cool way of demonstrating um, a transformation of um, how you can change the uh, the situation from coal into one of renewable energy, which that process of uh, getting that fair and just transition for the Low Trobe Valley continues to this very day. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, everyone who I knew who was involved in those initial protests was... Um, very much aware, not necessarily, you know, know, knowing how to how that transition would be created, but very aware of the um, of both the 
you know, amazing, resilience and amazing nature of that community, but also the disadvantage faced by people in that community and the, the potential disadvantage if the power station was closed down. And, you know, we were really keen to make sure that the messaging that we had was about that transition to renewable energy, about jobs and about climate justice. Mm. Um, because without justice for frontline communities, the, you know, the transition to renewable energy just will not work. That raises an interesting issue. Um, often people uh, talk about direct action and they think about um, activists, ferals, going out to a front line and, and doing things. But really when it comes down to it, um, it's ordinary people who go out and engage in these sort of actions, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think the thing is that we live in a complex social system and none of us can take on all of the roles within that system at any given time. So um, we take we take different roles at different times and um, it's you know, quite likely that someone who, for example, might work for a um, city council in renewable energy strategy or um, might work as a teacher who's, um, you know, educating future generations and, and giving them the skills that they need to find um, jobs in a new new workforce or a new economy, those, those same people might be out um, on their weekends or after hours organising these protests because the threat of climate change is so enormous mm. and so existential that... I think many of us feel that we need to really throw everything that we have at this problem, and that that includes our work hours, putting in and, and working towards the um, the transition, and also our after hours and weekends in in trying to find the most effective ways, um, because it never feels like, or rarely feels like, one way of working is is going to be adequate to make the changes that we need. You touched on earlier about the Stop HRL campaign, but I want to leapfrog that a little bit, if we may, and um, talk about uh, Bacchus Marsh and the No Neal Coal campaign that the Quick Coal Collective uh, took on um, working with the community out there. Can you recall that time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a really thriving um, local community group, the Mirable Environment Group, and they were opposed to a new coal mine uh, being developed at Bacchus Marsh and members of the Quick Call Collective met with them and to see if there, was, there were ways that we could support the community in their being um, the local community to organise um, local forums, um, a social media presence, that kind of thing and then through some pretty exciting direct action as well. Earlier in the show, we, I was just unpacking a little bit the difference between a campaign goal, a strategy and what a tactic is because, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd, Merrin. <laughs> <laughs> we need we need nerds, Phil. <laughs> so in this case, the um, the goal of the campaign was to support the community in stopping new coal developments in Bacchus Marsh. And you touched on a little bit about some of the tactics. So it was around um, some forums, uh, going out and talking with the local community, building awareness and some direct action, which I want to talk about more in a second. But uh-huh. I just wanted to kind of unpack a little bit about what was the strategy or like the vision of how we were going to get there um, towards that goal? Oh, that is a really good question. <laughs> you may have more memory of that time and that's specific to the strategy than I do. Um, um, I, mean, I think you kind of touched on it before when you were saying, um, I mean, the strategy more widely at Friends of the Earth is really about building resilient communities who are able to advocate on their own. And I think that differs a lot from the strategy of um, many other of our great comrades in the environment movement who might seem to build um, brand awareness and seek to build organisational power in order to shift the debate. 
But Friends of the Earth do things differently, and I, I think that's really interesting. You know, thinking about back over the time in the Quick Call Collective and the different things that we did, yeah, that, that Back as Marsh campaign and then supporting people at Anglesey to campaign against the coal-fired power station there, we really work with local communities. And I think first, you know, Friends of the Earth is really aware of trying to find that, uh, I guess, uh, place where a local push for environmental justice and social justice kind of meets with or, or could could use support from perhaps groups who have resources in terms of skills and volunteers or experience trying to, and, and using that as an opportunity to uh, work together to learn from those local communities about their um, their particular areas of interest and issues, uh, which they usually have a, a far better and, and deeper understanding of than, than perhaps people who don't live locally, and then uh, seeing what we can bring to the table in terms of those other resources and working together and um I think it's an incredibly powerful way of working. I don't remember where the quote comes from, but I remember hearing a quote that, that was essentially saying that it's amazing how much you can achieve if you don't mind who takes credit for it. And, um, uh, you know, local communities often, you know, need to work in such a way that their local member of parliament, for example, is able to present something as being a win or their um, the local council might... Um, present this as being a you know an achievement of the council um but i think that if you really look at, at those issues and have that focus on the justice on justice and working with local communities you can you can achieve a lot if you don't feel the need to always um have your have your particular brand out there what is interesting is getting down to tactics because we're activists and we like to do things so i do <laughs> want to shift the conversation to um a bit of direct action and just if you're just tuning in um you're on acting up on 3cr um this is phil evans here and we're talking with dr meron redenbach about her time in quick coal about campaign goals strategy how direct action goes into it as we celebrate 45 years of friends of the earth and creative resistance so with the Bacchus Marsh campaign, you mentioned there was some direct action. I have a particular image of one action in my head, and I wonder if you have the same one. <laughs> does it involve a, um, a person at the top of a drill rig? It does indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a so little that, bit about that one? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, that was an action that we undertook with the members of the local environment group who... Um, we're really on the lookout for where drilling rigs were coming to do test drills to assess the coal resource in that particular area. And the local community was keeping a really close eye out for where they got a drill rig. And on this particular day, they notified the work got around the drill rig in this particular site. And we mobilised a group of local people and the Quick Coal Collective to go out and do um, do an action. It was basically, the, the theme was a picnic um, on the drill rig site, really showcasing local produce and what the local community was driving to protect, which is their agricultural resource and reputation as a, a clean food producing area. And then um, as part of that, to make that picnic a bit more durable, um, one of the members of the collective, uh, Paul Connor, scaled the, the drilling rig and um, locked on up there. We gave him, we gave us the opportunity to really stay there for a few hours until he could be removed. And when you say locked on, um, that means a lot to those in the lingo, but what do you mean? So he attached himself with a locking device. I actually can't remember what specifically it was. It may have been a D-lock, lock, I imagine. They were quite <laughs> popular in the collective at that time. I think <laughs> they formed the basis of a, of a, a logo that was um, a heart shape made out of two D-locks. I actually have that tattooed on my knuckles now. <laughs> Oh, oh wow, oh wow, that's really special. What's sad. 
Um, and I can't remember who developed that logo. I suspect it might have either been Paul himself or it could have been Sean Murray, who was another key member of the collective. Mm. Yeah, but um, yeah, so Paul was Paul was attached to that drill rig, and yeah, he he stayed on there for a number of hours from memory. Yeah, it was an amazing. I think I I feel really bad. I can't remember her name. I think it was Natasha who yeah, was um, a local community member. Yes, and mm-hmm. she, she was um, she was pregnant at the time? Yeah, yes, she was. And um, for her, I remember that, and not wanting to speak on her part, but I remember that you know she felt that it was really important for her family, um, for her kids, that, that they had a, um, you know, a clean environment to grow up in um, and was really concerned about climate change as well as the local impact. Yeah, that was part of her commitment. Mm. Um, um, we're going to have to go to a quick break in a moment, but um, I just wanted to um, finish up there by just talking a little bit about safety. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these things sound, um, they, they should not be tried at home by uh, untrained people. So kids maybe don't go thinking about um, scaling the drill rig just yet. Um, other things are, are much safer. But um, safety is really important when you're doing these direct actions, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And um, even though something might be seem like a spot action or something that's happened kind of on the spur of the moment because we found out the location of that drill rig. Um, there's hours and hours and, you know, usually days and weeks of preparation in the lead-up, um, really thinking through what all the roles will be in that action, how um, the whole team is going to um, move around to support that um, person or the people who are um, taking an action that really puts them, them more at risk mm. um, than others and ensuring their safety. So, you know, safety is everything from um, really planning the, the physical, um, what the physical support that person will need is, um, you know, food, water, keeping cool, um, et cetera, um, the longevity of what of their, of their um, lock-on or, or whatever their, their protest is, um, but then other things such as making sure there's eyes on, making sure there's lots of media so that anything, everything's recorded, um, making sure there's adequate um, people there to support them, um, and then having police liaison, um, and then right through to if they, they are arrested, making sure that they're accompanied um, to the police station, making sure that you've marshaled the resources in terms of legal support um, to support them through that um, arrest process, and even right through until the last, you know, the last the last legal case. So the the focus on safety goes right from the start of planning right until the end of the last court case that's involved in that action. Absolutely, and, and and hopefully beyond as people um, continue to support each other, um, yeah, emotionally yep. after after actions. Yeah, because uh, campaigns don't just finish with um, direct action; they keep going. It's just a tactic in your strategy as you move towards your goal. The, the fight against climate change, the um, the push for the transition is is a long. It's going to be a long, long process. So. Sure, we're talking with Dr. Meryn Redenbach and we're going to take a really quick break and then um, return and um, finish up the chat. Um, There's so much to talk about, but we'll run out of time. Um, But it's so great to have uh, Meryn with us, an inspiring paediatrician, activist, uh, all-round inspiring woman who I count among one of the most inspiring people I've ever met in my life and I feel very privileged to know you and I hope you'll stick around and join me in just a moment to talk some more. Thank you so much. That'd be lovely. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. 
These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You are listening to 3CR with Phil Evans on Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores movements that made us drawing from the activist archives through to voices of resistance to today. This is the fifth in a series looking back at 45 years of Friends of the Earth, and we're midway through a conversation with Dr. Merrin Reddenbach, activist, paediatrician, and all-round inspiration. Um, we're talking about quick coal days, the, the glory days. We're talking about banner drops. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, do you want to start off with um, maybe the infamous Stop HRL banner um, that uh, was dropped? Was that about 2011? Uh, oh, let's see. So, I'm, uh, there, there are a couple of banners um, <laughs> that we were talking about in the break. Um, there was one that was actually, um, now I remember, was a Switch Off Hazelwood banner, which um, was dropped, um, was one of the most spectacular banner drops I've been involved with that uh, just didn't get any media whatsoever because we were so new to the process at that time that we really didn't understand how to organise a media-friendly action. Um, so that was a, an extraordinary banner drop that happened over the great, um, huge, curved um, billboard, which is opposite Flinders Street uh, Railway Station. And it said, switch off Hazelwood, switch on renewables, or perhaps no more climate backflips, I think, part of both of those messages and it covered the entire billboard and it took um, weeks of preparation and organisation and involved people scaling um, down from, upselling down from a building um, in Swanson Street and um, climbing up the back of this massive billboard um, and casting casting the banner over um, at I think about 10am in the morning on a, on a Saturday. Um, it was absolutely spectacular um, but because we've been too worried that the media might tell the police if we let them know in advance. We didn't have any media presence. (laughs) (laughs) If a banner drops in the city and there's no media to record it, did it happen? (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah. We've got got a few iPhone photos, but um, (laughs) nothing that really lives up to to, to how fantastic that banner would have been. So, um, yeah, which really is just an illustration of how, um, how we were really trying to do whatever we could. And um, at that, that point... Um, yeah, really uh, didn't have the, the knowledge to make things, pull things off in the way that we imagined. Um, so, um, but, the, but the collective quickly became more sophisticated than that, I, I would like to hasten to ask. Yes. <laughs> um, and probably our, um, oh gosh, there were another couple of really successful banners actually. One was um, dropped at a Stop HRL process, uh, protest um, from uh, the Windsor Hotel in um I remember my heart skipping a beat um, when it when it pulled off. It was amazing. It, everyone was just like, "Wow!" <laughs> yeah, that was um, that was really spectacular. And then, of course, there was um, an absolutely amazing Parliament banner drop, which happened um, a couple of years after that. Um, sure. And I'm afraid I'm getting hazy on timeframes now. Uh, I think that was. Ooh. <laughs> can't remember either. I think it was 2012 from memory. Um, it was yeah. James Hansen quote on there, wasn't it? Um, Cole, something about the destruction of civilization. 
<laughs> I think that it said that coal is the greatest threat to mankind, something like that. That's right, and it was um, dropped around uh, for the in the morning, and there was a bunch of people who chained themselves to Parliament as well. I think there was about 12 people on each of the pillars out the front. I remember I was the police liaison at that, um, and worker liaison at that action, and um, uh, working with another activist. And I remember walking up to the uh, the PSO at the front of the station, at uh, the parliament, and saying, "Oh, um, just so you know, these people who have chained themselves to the polls are—they're all doing a peaceful action." And you can see down there the media's there, so um, just be aware that um, you know the whole world's watching at the moment. So think about um, how you want to react to the news that I'm about to tell you. There's two abs is just coming over the roof now, and I would love to tell you what he said, but I don't think I'm allowed to say it on radio. <laughs> that sounds like excellent police liaison work there, um, Phil. That's great. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I want to say again, um, when we're talking about these climbing actions as well, um, there was a lot of training um, by skilled rope technicians that was involved. Um, it wasn't the type of thing that you can just uh, figure out really easily. I want to really hammer that, that um, climbing actions really need heavy safety protocols, and it's really, really important to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the person who trained Quick Call had been previously a professional climb trainer for um, Greenpeace um, in the mm. UK, I think, um, and had had that those years of experience. Um, yeah, and was also a doctor, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so so you know that was a person who not only knew how to climb, but had been trained in how to train people in how to climb, and I think that's really important because there's certainly been safety issues with actions where information's been passed down. Um, but not necessarily from people who have that, um, who are qualified um, as trainers, and then things have gone wrong. So um, there are, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely in the activist community a lot of people who have dedicated um, a huge amount of time to learning the skills and the safety that's needed to pull off those actions. Um, they're around if people people want to want to find them, that they can find them probably through contacting, you know, organisations that have, have done that kind of thing before. Mm, for sure. Um, possibly they could be linked through Friends of the Earth. I'm not sure how much more love to say about that kind of thing, but they could um, they could probably find their way to the people that they need who have that training and expertise. There's a lot of people who might work in um, you know, as arborists or cleaning in um, buildings or as professional climb trainers. So yeah, you you need to use those resources if you're thinking about organising that kind of action. For sure. Um, I wanted to quickly touch on the the infamous. Was it, I think it was 2013 uh, Flinders Street banner drop. Do you remember that one? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I could just forget. Coal and get onto the renewables train, I think. That one said. Um, there were a lot of banner drops back then. <laughs> it was it was very in vogue, wasn't it? <laughs> we, yes, we, I remember yes. just walking around the city thinking, we should really drop a banner off that. How about that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that was a... Well, they're, 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 you know, they make, a, they make a visual impression. They're... They're quite fun. They can be done safely if you have the proper safety precautions, and um, you know they're yeah really really attention grabbing. And I think I think a lot of um, fun for members of the community as well as the activists involved at times. You know, mm. while making a really serious point, it's a really engaging way um, to involve people. And just back to this idea of strategy and um, campaign, I mean, that was a period where I don't think there was necessarily a clear vision of or a campaign goal um, that was going on with um, 
a quick call other than, um, oh my God, climate change, oh dear, we really need to do something about this. Um, but all that changed um, a few years later with the threat of um, unconventional gas mining coming to uh, Victoria. So I think it was back in 2010 when Friends of the Earth first started to track the approval of new unconventional gas exploration licences in Victoria. So that means things like fracking, um, coal seam gas, um, tight gas and shale gas, as we learnt later on. Um, mm. I kind of wanted to finish up there and just tell the story of that um, the greatest direct action that never was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, it was a point in the campaign where there had been a moratorium on unconventional gas drilling in Victoria put in place by the um, state government for for a period of time. I think it was um, a, a year initially, and the government was planning to planning to lift that moratorium. And there were there were rumours that they were about to announce that the moratorium was going to be lifted, and um, that local community in Sea Spray, who were one of the, the early and really critical communities in um, organising the Lots of Gate model, were just absolutely devastated to hear that the moratorium they'd fought so hard for might be lifted. And so they um, organised um, an action where they were going to bring their horses um, from their farms to Melbourne um, and ride their horses up Burke Street to, um, to Parliament House, which would have been an absolutely spectacular um, action and would have stopped um, traffic obviously in central Melbourne for quite some time having um, a large number of beautiful enormous horses um, marching up Burke Street um, with the, the farmers in their in their full farming attire um, yeah and uh, but the, the very threat of that incredible spectacle was so great that the um, government announced that they would not be in fact reversing the moratorium and the moratorium then remained in place until we were able to get the permanent ban on tracking in Victoria so that was a very, very special accident that didn't actually need to occur in the end. So I'm sure the, I'm sure the horses were glad not to not to have that four hour four hour journey to Melbourne. Absolutely, and um, what a great note to um, finish that chat with you on, um, Marin. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and joining us on Acne Nub on 3CR today. Let's go out on a favourite song from the Quick Call Collective days. It's the Lurkers. Who's got a padlock and chain? <laughs> Thanks so much, Marin. <laughs> See you later. Thank you, Phil. It's been delightful. It was lovely to speak with you. Down at the metro mine. Down at the metro mine. Who's going to lie on that hard rail line? Stop Peabody's coal digging crime. Coal mining takes your life away. It's a dead end job, I say. Get dust on your lung, get a cold blackened tongue, and a dead planet back with your pay. Who's got a padlock and chain? Who's got a padlock and chain? Locking on tight to that coal train tonight. Tell me who's got a padlock and chain? For wool and gold, people do you dread? Yes, wool and gone people do you dread That sound up on the hill, yes, that's Peabody's drill Cracking through your drinking river bed Yes, Peabody's digging up that coal The Peabody's digging up that coal Gonna lie down on the track and make for all the coal back Cause nobody should be digging up coal Who's got a padlock and chain now? Who's got a padlock and chain? Well, tell me now. Locking on tight to that coal train tonight. Tell me who's, who's got, got a padlock and chain? chain?
Yes, that was Who's Got a Padlock and Chain by The Lurkers. Definitely one of my uh, favourite tracks from the good old days of Quidco. So you're listening to 3CR. This is Phil Evans, and this is Friends of the Earth's 45th Birthday Retrospective History Series. We're on part five, talking about campaign strategies and direct action and all the things in between. We've just um, had a wonderful chat with Dr. Meryn Redenbach before um, that track. Um, and if you have missed any of it, um, this will be available as a podcast so you can catch up later on um, at 3cr.org.au. But now I want to move the conversation around a little bit um, to another staunch and inspiring woman uh, who I met through working and volunteering at Friends of the Earth. Her name is Mara Bonacci, and she is currently working as the South Australian Waste Dump Anti-Nuclear Campaigner, which is probably not her official title. I'm sure it's much better than that. Um, but she's joining me on the phone, and I'm really excited to talk to her. Mara, are you there? I am. Hi, Phil. It's uh, so good to talk to you. Um, I you really, too. I, I, I often feel so lucky to uh, be part of a, a place like Friends of the Earth. Plug, plug, plug. Um, you get to meet such amazing people. Always, and that's been Fo's history for forty-five years now. So many amazing people doing amazing things that are important. Indeed. And speaking of important and amazing things, can you tell me about how you first got involved with Friends of the Earth? Because it wasn't around nukes, was it? No, I started with um, the Friends of the Earth Forest Collective um, back in the early 90s and 
because um, I got all, what, 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 what do I do? What do I do? And I, you know, discovered Friends of the Earth and wandered into a forest network meeting one Monday evening and there's, you know, 20 or 30 people in a meeting most weeks and we were working back then mostly on East Gippsland stuff um, and out of that we were trying to, you know, stop the logging of old growth forests and a whole lot of, you know, perfectly good trees being cut down and wood chipped and sent to Japan for 20 cents a tonne um, before um, being turned into pulp and then bought back as paper. So all the profit went to Japan and our forests and habitat were just getting destroyed. So, I mean, that campaign's still going um, and they're doing a great job, but unfortunately the government's still, you know, allowing people to cut down those amazing trees. Sure. So we've, we're, we're talking about campaign strategies and, and yeah. goals and, and how direct action fits into that. So you might say that the goal there was um, to stop the old growth logging and being turned into to, to, to reflex yeah. paper? I can yeah, name there were heaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was reflex. It was, um, your Victorian wood chips were, you know, out of East Gippsland going into reflex paper. It was outrageous. Um, so we did heaps of stuff. We, um, people were um, working on, like, blockading on the ground in the forest, and then there were the city-based actions. Um, and so some of it was raising awareness. We started up, a bunch of us started up the boycott wood, chi- boycott wood chipping campaign, mm. and that was really good because it was um, people from Friends of the Earth, Environment Victoria, Wilderness Society, and all working together on the one campaign to... Um, to, to boycott reflex and, and try and um, educate people about how their um, paper choices could have a direct impact on protecting um, Victoria's forests, um, which is the home of the leadbeater's possum, which is, you know, less likely to go to extinct than it is now. But at the time, we're trying to raise awareness about all of that. And so it's something that everyone in the cities could do. Everyone uses copy paper. So, like, if people buy ethically then that, that will have some impact on saving the forest. Um, and so we were trying to raise a whole lot of awareness and get, you know, different companies to stock recycled paper in their shops, um, companies to buy it for their copy supply and schools and all sorts of places, encouraging them to shut down, um, stop buying reflex and have an impact on the wood shipping industry and therefore protecting forests. Then there were actions at the, at the uh, wood chip mills where the chips were wood chips. Um, we're, we're exported from, so mm. we'd be we do actions at Midway's Mill in um, Geelong or at Eden in um, near the New South Wales Victoria border on the coast there. So there was a big range, of, so as well as you know actions at the um, what we used to call the Department of Ever Changing Names, but that was the Department, <laughs> the Victorian Department of the Environment. Um, so there was all sorts of things because always you've got to have like a multi-prong approach. You've got to do stuff on the ground um, and. Um, with community and try and raise, um, raise the attention of, all, of people that don't know what you're doing and also lobby the government as well. So it has it always, no matter what the campaign, has to be a multiple-pronged approach. I, I love it. Um, you really broke down the strategy well there um, and it's really, really cool to hear people talking about that. Often people can silo or really just uh, focus in on one thing, whether it be just corporate campaigning or just targeting decision makers or um, building a, a community movement around it. But this campaign was doing all three simultaneously. Yeah, and that's good because everyone's got different interests and different skills and that means everyone can work on one little patch or work together or, you know, jump in and support other people working on another side of it. So it's really good because if you do one thing 
only, you're not likely to really get anywhere, I find. Um, but having a multiple prong and everyone can, multiple prongs and playing, everyone sort of playing to their strengths, um, can be effective and also, um, empowering for people. So everyone can do what interests them and it's all helpful because every bit helps. Yes, yes, yes. Multiple points of entry, different ways for people oh. to get involved. That was something um, we were talking about with Merrin as well, was how important it is to leave things open for um, for community to really step up and be empowered, because that's really a huge part of the way Friends of the Earth operates. It's about building resilient communities who can act for themselves. Uh, we're not the busload of activists there to save the day. We want people to um, rise up and recognise their own power. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and having a... Um you know, raising awareness to start with and then upskilling people and then giving people the confidence and whatever resources they need to work in their own communities. It's been always one of those incredible strengths going out to communities and going, you can say no to whatever this ridiculous proposal is um, and, and inspiring communities and helping them fight for, you know, protection of the environment and social justice. Sure. So I want to drill into a little bit of the direct action tactics that um, were used in the campaign. Can you tell us about um, maybe your favourite action um, that happened um, back in the 90s? Oh, my God, I have to dust my brain off. (laughs) (laughs) If you can remember the 90s, you weren't doing it properly. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, So there were heaps of the... um, Heaps of the... All the... the, um, the, the midwife actions were really. I mean, that was probably my first du- direct actions. It was in- incredible. There was, um, you know, pe- people locking on to things. There was, um, and, and just trying to shut things down and, and, and raise the awareness. We did. There was all sorts of silly things going on. But um, you know, out in out in East Gippsland, there was one incredible woman who was in a wheelchair, and she went up a tripod in her like. Oh. It's incredible. So people of all abilities were able. To, to do, part, participate in that direct action because they were supported by everyone else and that's a huge part of it. Like that, no one, no one is limited when they've got the support of all the crew around them. So that, that was pretty amazing seeing all sorts of people of varying ability not being inhibited by whatever their conditions were, being able to participate and be like really staunch about what they were trying to do. It's incredible. And how so it wasn't about particular actions, any particular action that got me. It was people, individual people's actions at different direct actions. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And you're just you're making my heart flutter a little bit, Mara. <laughs> 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 Can I ask you though um, about creativity um, and how that played a role in the actions? Um, well. To be honest, other people are more creative than me. I'm I'm, I'm more of a practical, get stuff done, logistics type. And more often than not, to be honest, it was other people coming up with the really clever, creative things we could um, we could do. Um, Like people coming up with all sorts of, um, you know, block eighty tactics out in East Gippsland, or um, or creative ways to get the media's attention for actions in the city, or or stuff like that. There's all, all sorts of all, all sorts of stuff, the, the creativity, but that's the beauty of having lots of people involved that, um, that, that, um, you know, some people do have those creative ideas and some other people have got, you know, the, the ways to make those ideas happen. So everyone working together gets stuff done. For sure. Um, and I, I mean, we could talk for hours about our um, forest campaign, but I do want to flash forward a little bit and talk about what you're working on now, which is the anti nuclear issue. Mm. Um, 
I mean, the the issue has been, well, it literally was the foundation of Friends of the Earth back in 1974. Um, oh. when, uh, um, the hippies of yore, as I call them, came together <laughs> to to uh, to form Friends of the Earth uh, to as they were protesting against the uh, the proposed nuclear reactor on French Island. Correct me if my yeah. history is wrong, but no, that's right, that's right. Yeah, and and you continue that tradition today with your anti-nuclear work. Um, and can you? Tell us, um, I mean, a lot of that is about going out and once again um, helping communities to speak with their own voice, but does direct action play a role in, in the current work with the anti-nuclear movement? Well, I'm working on the campaign against the radioactive waste facility they want to site in um, South Australia at the moment. Because the government hasn't, hasn't picked a site, we haven't done any you know, blockade type mm. things. The blockading is a useful tool but it has to be strategic and you've got to, mm. you know, it's not the right time at this point and we hope that it doesn't actually come to that kind of a last resort. So we've been doing, um, we've had over the last few years um, rallies either in the city or in Port Augusta mm. or in Hawker and various places. Um, so there's, there's been um, actions outside politicians' offices. Um, so there's, there's been... A, a, a bunch of ways. There's a document you can find on the internet, 168 different ways of direct action. So there's more to DA than just locking on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important point to point out that um, direct action is much more than blockading and um, oh. and the intervention kind of style of things. It can be about protest and persuasion. It can be about non-cooperation. So like the consumer boycotts that you were talking about before. Oh. And there's lots of different ways to get involved in direct action. And that's what makes it such an interesting um, avenue of uh, strategic thought when you are doing a campaign is because it does present so many different ways for people to get involved um, with mm. your campaign. Yeah, and there's always something you can do. Um, doesn't matter how many people you have or what resources you have or what people's capacity or interest or time availability is, there's always something people can do. You've just got to use your brain a little bit about and think a little bit creatively about what's appropriate now with the resources and the people we have at the moment. Um, absolutely. Um, we are just about out of time, Mara, but I want to thank you. Time flies, still, Evan. No, it does, doesn't it? It's because we're having so much fun because we love being on Radical Radio, like 3CR, this acting up show, looking at the 45 years of Friends of the Earth. And it is always nice to talk to uh, my comrades from Friends of the Earth. So, Mara, I really do want to thank you so much. Thanks so much, Phil, and happy birthday, so. <laughs> um, I want to go out um, on a track. Um, it's by uh, uh, Walmampa and uh, Waramungu activist and hip-hop artist Kylie Sambo, um, and it's a track about uh, the uh, struggle to stop the Makati waste dump, which was another struggle we didn't talk about this time, but um, it's a pretty cool track, um, and we'll go out on that one, and we'll be back on Acting Up in just a moment. Thanks so much, Mara. Thanks, Phil. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay, see you later. Bye.
Listening to 45 Years of Creative Resistance, a retrospective history about Friends of the Earth, the part of 3CR's Acting Up program. I'm your host, Phil Evans, and we've just run out of time. We're at the end of the show. It's been a lot of fun and a wonderful trip down memory lane for me. And I want to thank my guests, Dr. Meryn Rudenbach and Mara Bonacci, um, for joining me. Um, co-producers, M. Gaifer and Megan Williams. And of course, the listeners, those of us who've listened live on the air on 855 AM or streamed it online at 3cr.org.au. And for those of you who have joined us in podcast land, retrospectively listening, you can always catch up with a podcast check out 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts from so thanks so much for joining us today and tune in next week um, for another episode of Acting Up and looking back at Foe's 45 years of radical resistance um, if you've been involved in a campaign at Friends of the Earth and you want to get involved in this series then contact Friends of the Earth to get in touch via our Facebook page or give us a call 039419 Eight seven double zero. That's zero three nine four one nine eight seven double zero. I'm Phil Evans. This is Acting Up. You're on three CR. Keep it here. Let's go out with an old favourite. Um, this is Insurge, Political Prisoner. <laughs> <laughs>